Could reimagining shopping malls help solve the GTA housing crunch? Some developers are betting on it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest Toronto Real Estate Podcast. Today, we're going to deep dive into the innovative world of mall cities. In a time where e-commerce, online shopping, and door delivery are booming and the days of mom-and-pop shops are becoming increasingly obsolete, traditional shopping centers are undergoing a massive transformation. In fact, they're evolving into bustling, amenity-rich mall cities, combining retail, residential spaces, and community-focused areas. Today, we will explore this transformation covering specific projects, including Vancouver's Oak Ridge Center and Square One in Mississauga, and the impact on retail and the integration of residential spaces and much, much more. If you're as interested as we are in learning how mall cities are reshaping our urban centers, ensuring relevancy in the e-commerce age and contributing to communities, then you are in the right place. Stay tuned as we unfold chapters of this exciting evolution and engage with experts and insiders sharing their valuable perspectives. And remember, if you find this episode insightful, please be sure to like, subscribe, and comment below. Your engagement drives us to bring more quality content to you like today's guest. Well, today we have a very special guest, a seasoned mixed-use development expert focusing on innovative placemaking in his two decade career, Rob Spanier from the Spanier Group has successfully realized over 80 diverse projects worldwide. He boasts an extensive background in large-scale mixed-use development, master planning, and specialty leasing. His significant roles at IntraWest Corporation, the Urban Land Institute, the past chair of the Toronto District Council, among other advisory roles, underscore his commitment to developing thriving prosperous communities. Rob has left a huge impact on major projects like Lakeview Village and Woodbine Districts. His active contributions to the Urban Land Institute and various advisory committees highlight his continuous efforts to advance transit, supportive development, and planning across Ontario. A respected speaker, Rob frequently shares his insights at prominent organizations and holds a degree from McGill University. His passion for developing connective, enjoyable spaces continues to drive his exceptional work in the field. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so, so happy to have you here. And of course, our wonderful Fox Marin VP of Sales, Jessica Spilas, is also joining us today with an extensive background in real estate, architecture, and journalism, knowing she'll have many colorful and insightful questions for our special guest, Rob, today. My name is Corey Marin. I am a real estate broker and co-founder of Fox Marin, and I will be one of your hosts today. We also have none other than Mr. Ralph Fox, Fox Marin's broker record and big time business thinker who also happens to be my partner in crime here as well. So looking forward to jumping in and in fact, getting some clarity right away about this definition of the mall city. And Rob, before we were jumping on, we were already talking about how the very definition of a mall city might be a bit obtuse. So that might be a really good place to start. Sure. And thank you all for having me. Such a pleasure to hang out with friends and colleagues on this exciting discussion. <laughs> yes. And so much to talk about, so much to cover. And I look forward to trying to cover it all. I love it. Mall cities. Interesting. It's a bold statement. What has been happening over the last two decades, I would say, is that development has continued to grow. We grew out for many years, the whole mm -hmm. suburban sprawl concept, and then we started to grow up. 
started to see a lot more vertical neighborhoods, downtown intensifications. And what has happened, certainly in some of the uh, more dense urban environments, is they're running out of space. And malls that had traditionally been the centers of communities for many neighborhoods and and many places and many cities uh, were starting to think about their next evolution. And some of the largest asset owners, developers that own those, and some people who've been acquiring them, have started to think about what could the future of the mall look like if it was redeveloped in whole, Mm -hmm. redeveloped in part, or complemented with some residential housing. And it's a really interesting discussion that's happening. And again, trends are not something that happen overnight. And this trend has been evolving over the last 10 to 15 years, 20 years, as I said. Um, But it's now becoming such a such a conversation because of the need for more residential housing in our country. And that goes across from coast to coast. There is a housing shortage, as we all know. Mm -hmm. And what are the opportunities to help bolster the supply side? One of those opportunities is reimagining these malls. And what defines a mall, just to be clear? when, When I think mall, I think like Eaton Center. Or, or should I be thinking a little bit smaller or something more like Cloverdale Mall or a strip mall? Like, tell me what that means. So it's an interesting point. A mall, let's say 50 years ago, 70 years ago, was the place, the auto-centric place where you would come mm-hmm. with a parking lot that was quite large, maybe some vertical stacked parking, to come and do the majority of your shopping, predominantly with some of those, as Ralph said in the intro, of national tenancies, some of those key big anchors, the bigger boxes, the more well-known tenancies. Also, there are smaller uh, opportunities like those strip centers or neighborhood community centers. And what we're seeing is that a lot of these retail centers, those areas where there is a concentration of retail, it doesn't matter if it's a mall, a strip center, a power center, they are redeveloping themselves for higher and better uses because some of those uses have, as they say, come to term. They've sort of come to the end of their term. And again, in certain instances, some of the users that were brand new have also exited the market. So thinking about where retail congregates as having been one thing is evolving. And the other interesting thing is if you really look on a map of Ontario, GTA, or major centers, these malls have typically located themselves in proximity to transit, uh, in proximity to major highways, uh, the 400 series highways, where there is also a center of population. And typically that population was much more what I would call horizontal, uh, single family houses in the periphery. Mm -hmm. So a really interesting opportunity to build that city or that center and go vertical. Who owns most of the malls? Like I know there's like Cadillac Fairview would be an example of a big mall owner, but who are the majority of maybe some of the smaller strip malls or some of these power centers? Are they corporations who own it? Like, tell me a little bit about that. It sort of spans various asset owners. There are certainly pension funds and REITs that own Mm -hmm. malls. Cadillac Fairview, which is owned by a a pension fund. Oxford that is owned by another pension fund. There are other pension funds, Quadriel, as you, you referenced, one of the malls own them. And then there are other players that actually have acquired malls and or have held the, these assets for many, many years. So I would say that some of the bigger players own the majority of the, the malls that you can think of in the Toronto area. As you referenced, the Eaton Center, Cadillac Fairview, uh, Sherway Gardens, Yorkdale, Square One. Those are you know the bigger Oxford Cadillac Fairview players. And then you have other pension funds that own other assets. And and in certain instances, there have been some very 
savvy developers who have thought about the next iteration of these developers. And was their initial goal when setting up these malls as they once were known real estate plays at the time or were they retail plays at the time? Retail plays. Mm. What you've seen is a, a very important shift in the real estate space going from single uses to multi-uses to mixed-use development. And mixed-use development is really the underpinning of a lot of what's happening. Municipalities, governing bodies, those that have proven entitled things are looking for much more community-minded development that goes on. Moreover, a lot of your clients are thinking about where they want to live, what neighborhood do they live in, whether they're buying a single family house or a condo, they start to think about the district, the schools, the transit, the access to highway. Mm -hmm. And so they're thinking about that. But back in the day, it was single use. You also saw a really interesting thing happen with existing malls that 20 years ago, there was an average food court in a mall. And then you had a lot of good retail and maybe a movie theater. And then all of a sudden, these mall owners realized, oh, we have a captive audience, people who've come here to spend time and money. How do we lengthen that stay? Well, let's put in some restaurants. They put some restaurants in on the interior. Then they realized if they could cluster those and put those on the exterior-facing area of the mall, Mm -hmm. people would come. So if you see what has happened at um, Yorkdale Mall, for example, there's some great restaurants on the west end of the mall today. I've got to tell you, some incredible restaurants beyond you know the chains, and I think we should tackle the whole mom and pop conversation that Ralph opened up on because they're you know UC Food, which was I believe a Markham so based uh, Asian restaurant. What is, it? what is it? UC Food. I had to do some lunch incredible there the other day, and it blew my mind. The service was phenomenal. Presentation, food quality, really? it hit on every level. At Yorkdale. Mm-hmm. Restoration Hardware mm-hmm. has an incredible mm-hmm. restaurant, Cafe Landwar. My kids love this amazing sushi. Uh, I forget the name of the restaurant, but it's like on a conveyor belt where you order digitally from a screen. There is so much happening from a food perspective that's evolved from the food court. And all that to say, these trends are all helping where people want to spend their time and money, but also in this next iteration where they may choose to live. So interesting. I used to work at Yorkdale Mall back in the day when I was in high school. And the food court was the place to hang out, but we didn't have options to eat at places like that. I was like, very happy to have the baguette. <laughs> there you go. And so, you know, captive audiences are incredible in any, in any, I guess, business or in any market where you're trying to attract people. And so some of these retail malls have realized they're doing exceptionally well. So how do they add on to it? Other malls have sort of seen the end of their days. And so they need to think about how to transform themselves, knock themselves down. And in other instances, there are opportunities where part of the mall is still doing really well, but they're going to demall part of the, you know, the other part and redevelop it. And that isn't just residential. That might be community amenities, public realm, public space, opportunities to bring people back to these malls or to these malls for the first time as a real center of gravity. It's not a downtown because everyone thinks of Toronto, Montreal, New York, Chicago as the downtown. But someone really intelligent said something to me recently, which is uh, we're working on a project up north of Yorkdale Mall on the Downsview redevelopment, Mm -hmm. the Bombardier land. And they said, you know, the geographic center of the GTA is really in that area. And if you think about it, the future downtown for the greater Toronto area could be this entire, you know, donut, the hole in the donut. So when you're talking about 
parts of the mall possibly being redeveloped. I just want to imagine Yorkdale because that's easy for everyone to understand or even the Eaton Center. Like like Nordstrom, their anchor tenant is now gone or the bay yeah. is like losing footage day after day. So they've got these like massive square foot spaces. There's no retail that's going to be able to move in there and fill their shoes, all that space. So that would be a section of the mall where they're going to look at possibly redeveloping it into a community space or some sort of mixed use or possibly residential? Yes and no. It really depends. The Nordstrom space would have to be a very smart and thoughtful use because Nordstrom is actually, is my understanding from reading the newspaper, still under contract in their lease. So hard, you know, they may have walked away physically, but they still have obligations to to uh, the asset owner. But thinking about uses that could be intelligent as this place evolves, because they have a whole master plan of putting residential towers out by the 401 highway and starting to create a bit of a neighborhood and street fabric. But maybe that building becomes an incredible grocery store or an Italy type food space. Or maybe they convert some of that space to medical office buildings or some health and wellness use. So if you think about a mall and a space, uh, it's not just about plopping down residential in certain instances, but it's reimagining some of those assets. In other instances, I have seen malls that have literally severed off half of them and demolished them. There is a mall at Dufferin and DuPont. That's right. Uh, that's redeveloping Galleria, itself. Galleria? That's correct. And that's done really well, that project. It's, it's doing really well. Very exciting development. Really interesting Lots of activity going on there. They're actually part of that panel that I did for the Urban Land Institute Spring Meeting in Toronto on the future of the mall. It's really interesting when you think about the evolution of malls. Like I think about my experience as a young child (laughs) going to Yorkdale and what that was like. And thinking at the time, relative to all of my experiences, it was amazing. But, you know, the most exciting thing would be to, you know, jump on the uh, toy horse (laughs) put the quarter in and rock back and forth. And that was an amazing experience. And maybe we go to Kohl's or something like that. And I pick up a book and that would be phenomenal. And you look at what a behemoth Yorkdale has become today. And then going back to uh, Galleria Mall, before they tore it down, walking through there was very reminiscent of what Yorkdale felt like as a child, but it just never, ever, ever evolved. And so the natural sort of conclusion would be to rip that down and and start all over again, which is what they did. And I think they put together an awesome project and the whole neighborhood, an entire neighborhood and area is going to be completely revitalized. And you look at what's happening down on Geary Street and it's starting to feel like Ossington. And it's just brought to life so much to a whole area, just like when they opened the Drake on Queen West, what that did for uh, that part of the, literally that part of the city. And so it's just interesting to see the evolution of a mall like Yorkdale and how it changed so much and what it's like to spend time there. And I've seen renderings of all the proposed towers going in all around all around it virtually. And it's pretty amazing how a city is going to be built around something that literally became a, a, a center and evolved and evolved and regenerated itself to now. It's just like, it's almost like gravity is going to pull a whole city to develop around it. Well, you have to ask yourself the question, why? Why is this happening? Yes, there is demand. Yes, we need more housing. But there is a true demand, not, not an, a desire, but a demand for place. What does that mean? It means that today's generation is revolting against just living anywhere. 
we have so much access from a technology perspective. The next generation is way more savvy about how and where and why. Yes, we have housing issues. Yes, we have cost issues. We have metrics that are challenging to get into the real estate market. But the desire and now the demand is, I want to live somewhere that's not just living on top of a Home Depot. I don't just want to live on the side of the highway. What kind of experience am I looking for? And, and what's fascinating is my kids that are now 11 and 13 have a much more explosive, expansive, global view of the world because it's all in their fingertips mm-hmm. with their technology. And so it's not just, we need more housing, let's build. It's where do I want to live? How do I want to live? What kind of experience do I want? And what am I looking for? So, you know, malls are just one formation of this whole discussion. Neighborhoods are emerging. And what I hope these great redevelopments will will create, because Toronto is world-class, well-known for being a city of neighborhoods. It's incredible. One of the things that's really hard if you're not from Toronto is to understand where those neighborhoods are and where you should live and why and what the experience is. Hopefully, these are going to be the emergence of new neighborhoods that are going to want to attract a whole host of new people to want to live in these areas. And this is something Ralph and I've been talking a lot about lately because the traffic in Toronto has become insatiable. Like to get from east to west or west to east, I mean, you have to be committed. You're like, I'm going to Leslieville. I'm going to leave an hour before from the West End because I don't know how long it's going to take me. Like Ralph and I were at a property the other day at uh, Gerard and Coxwell and it took us an hour and a half to drive back to the annex. Like we were just like inching along. I'm like, I feel like I could run faster. (laughs) Like it was just insanity. And so we keep talking about this. We're like the neighborhood story that Toronto Dad is going to make a massive comeback where everything that you need or want, you can access on foot or by bicycle. So you can like stop to your like local butcher, you can go to your local hairdresser, or you want to stop and get groceries or have a little Italian dinner, whatever it might be, is all going to be in your area because it's impossible to get across the city to share an experience with a friend over a drink when it's going to take you an hour and a half one way. So it makes sense for us to start thinking about the city being that big, that we need to develop these pockets so people can feel like they have a sense of community. Because right now, it just feels like kind of a bit of a clusterfuck. Like, it it really does. Like, Yeah. And I'm going to... It's so funny when you say that, Corey, because two things come to mind. One, I grew up in Montreal, which is a much smaller Mm -hmm. city. And I reflect back on you know, my years as a kid and having easy access to transit. And in my neighborhood, I was right at the corner was the bakery Mm -hmm. and the the fruit store and the bank. And then I could hop on the bus and go downtown on the metro, which is the subway terminology in Montreal. You know, that sense of neighborhood, that sense of place always lived with me. And the other thing was when I moved to Toronto, I looked around and I'm like, I can't get my head around how everybody's going to use downtown Toronto as their downtown and a light bulb went off in my head. And it was like, there's going to be 15 downtowns over the next 30 years in our city and in our region. Vaughan will have its own downtown. Mississauga Mm -hmm. will have its own downtown. Markham will have its own downtown. And what you're seeing is the emergence of these things and these places. It's not to take away from historic Unionville in Markham, but there is a project called Downtown Markham that has been developing over the last 20 years. And so what you're starting to see are these 
I wouldn't quite call them downtowns, but these centers, these centers of gravity, so that you don't have to go all the way down to Toronto onto King Street or Queen Street to get your fix of, of life. It's really interesting when Mel Lastman came out and said, this is what we're going to create in North York. And I was like, what the hell is he talking <laughs> about? How are they going to make another downtown? And you go to um, Young and Shepherd and you experience what is there versus what was there 10 years ago. And you literally are in a, 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 a different downtown or a different section of Toronto that is very much a part of Toronto, but yet very different from what you would consider to be downtown Toronto. My challenge with that one, Ralph, is it feels just like a corridor or a very an intensive an intensified area, but there is yeah. no hug. There's no place that I want to go. And it's interesting because I, my kids have a huge influence on what I think about because a lot of these projects yeah. are being thought through by our generation and older generations. But where kids want to hang out, where younger people want to hang out, I've used this reference many times. We're working on, on Downsview and Lakeview and so many other exciting projects. If my kids don't want to hang out there, it's not going to stick. Now, that's a very generalist statement to make, but the reality is true. At Young and Shepherd, it's fantastic development. There's many developers that have been successful, residential, office, retail, but I don't really know where I want to hang out when I'm up there. There's no soul. Well, it, was never, it, was never, it was never master planned to the level of the other projects that you're talking about, yeah. where it was thought from the bottom up, from the inside out. This was just something that evolved with a vision without a lot of construct to it. And I think that's why you see what you see there. But still, just the idea of another major area outside of the downtown core of Toronto. And it's striking because when you look at the city from Lake Ontario, you see this. But if you ever see a north-south view of the skyline of Toronto, it's really actually impressive how far back the, the, off of Young Street, the spine of the city runs with another massive cluster of towers at Young and Shepherd. And it's almost like anchoring the, the, the back end of the city, which I find really interesting because it's not something you intuitively think of when you think of the Toronto skyline. It's true. So it's, it's happening everywhere. And one thing that I do tell our clients and, and our friends is it's hard to have a there, there everywhere. Not all of these things are going to be the greatest place. And some of them may not succeed. My hope is that the projects that are, are, are large-scale in nature are taking the time to think, taking the time to plan, because this is not a power center that takes 30 months to build and you're done. There was a great article that, that came out talking about projects that have been developed over the last 10 years, like the well that is just about to get delivered by RioCan Allied, Tridel and Diamond Corp. And it was it took a lot of time and well thought through. Um, huge project. These projects require the right uh, set of expertise mm -hmm. around the table, but also the right amount of time. And not everybody can afford to do that. It's a very capital-intensive uh, proposition to build these projects at scale. And Rob, can you tell us about some of the projects that you've worked on and what that process of being thoughtful from the ground up entails and how you would think about something like that and how you would advise your clients. And if you had any real case uh, examples you could sure. give, I think that'd be awesome. Sure. And you know, our, our company uh, has been around now for five years, which is exciting and fun. Have had the privilege to work on many of the preeminent mixed-use developments that are underway or having 
had been delivered over the last little while. I'll, I'll name just a few, but you know, Lakeview Village in Mississauga on the waterfront is the former site of the Ontario Power Generating Station, where the four sisters, the smokestacks, used to sit. Most people who mm-hmm. sail would use that as a as a navigable yeah. beacon. And Ralph knows uh, all about that. <laughs> yeah, Ralph's a sailor. I, I didn't know that. I I used to have a twenty uh, foot shark, twenty two <laughs> foot shark, and we used to moor it at the National Yacht Club. Wow. Um, and there's some great stories maybe I can share with you guys a little oh later on. I can't wait to hear about uh, your Ralph sailing. The sailor. Uh, so Lakeview is a 177-acre property that was acquired by a consortium of developers through a public process. Uh, and these five developers came together to create one of Canada's most transformative waterfront developments. It will have a ton of open space. It is going to have at term 16,000 residential units. Whoa. And I'll pause there for a Massive. second because that's, that's a lot of housing, yeah. which is fantastic. Uh, 1.8 million square feet of, of non-retail innovation space. We call it the Lakeview Innovation District. So educational, institutional, innovation, employment space. So 9,000 jobs. And then the type of retail that I love, which is the specialty retail, and and again, Ralph, I'm gonna we're gonna jump on this at some point, but I still think the best in class independent mom and pops will outperform the nationals when set up correctly because I love those individuals. They don't have to be just the small little corner store individual that you think of, but some of the best uh, mom and pops out there are are doing incredibly well. Some of these restaurants that have one, two, or five locations locally. And so that type of retail will be there. We're still going to have the grocery store, still have the pharmacy, still have the LCBO, still have the bank or a couple of banks, those service-based mm-hmm. businesses. But we want to complement it with some of those specialty restaurants and retailers, things to do retail versus things to buy retail to make that place great. We have um, over 60 acres of, of park land that's within it that's going to bring people to, to visit it. An incredible pier that was built for the coal ships that would come in to bring the coal for the power generating station that is going to be uh, when we're when we are open one of the longest points on Lake Ontario that is all open to the public so it's an incredible experience to go outdoors there's also the Jim Toby conservation area which is another 68 acres of of land that has is adjacent to the project that it'll just be you know public realm space and so it's an incredible project that I've had the privilege of working on over the last five years five plus years to help create that environment in that place which and again I'll, I'll go through this and it applies to all the projects there is the the fundamental thinking about what you're going to create and most people term that the master plan and you need a whole host of stakeholders involved designers planners uh, in certain cases engineers study, um, we look at sun and shade, we look at servicing, we look at so many different aspects, and then we have to go through a process to get approved uh, through the municipality and the region. Lakeview is going to be bringing something called district energy to the whole project, which instead of having boilers and chillers on the roofs, all of the energy will be coming, uh, the heating and cooling coming through the ground through these pipes and using the wastewater treatment plant just to the east as a heat sink to create you know, some of that, uh, that heat that's going to be required to generate the system. So all of the, all of the residential projects and the retail projects and the office will connect into this sustainable energy technology, which is incredible. And so there's a whole host of thinking and planning at the small scale and the big scale, and then rolling it out. A lot of people think that 
the planning, which is highly complicated, is the only thing. Then you actually have to develop this. And so the developers have committed so much time and money to assure this long-term success of this project. It's, it's not just about creating a great vision and a plan. You need to execute. And, and the consortium of owners who have been involved in this project since day one have, have really delivered and put their money where their mouth is and are committed to the long-term success of this project. And so from a conceptual standpoint, as a, a consultant for a project like this or even other projects, like what are you thinking about or what are you trying to maybe bring to the developer's attention that they may not be thinking about in terms of what kind of a community you want to create or build? At the Spaniard Group, we are mixed-use development advisors uh, that focus on developments. And we really think about that ground floor 50 feet up. Everything that is non-residential, we want to think about the public realm, the retail, the office employment institutional space. And so many developments over the last 30 years have been extremely successful, as you know, on the residential side. But the retail has been the afterthought. Mm -hmm. It's been the thing that's left over. And sometimes I've heard from developers, it just, no one was interested. It didn't actually work. The city forced us to put retail. And I'm not a proponent of putting more. I'm actually a proponent of putting less retail or active ground floor space, but making it perform better. And that does start at the development level of what kind of space are you delivering? Are you delivering a space that is, you know, appropriately deep, appropriately wide, has good glazing? Are there columns all throughout so you can't actually see through the space? Is it shallow in depth so it's and has really high ceilings like a flagpole store? Or is it actually the kind of space that will function? A lot of the development of these projects leave the retail as the afterthought. And what we try to do is get involved, whether it's a vertical neighborhood, we're working with many developers that don't have a project as large as Lakeview, that just want to think about that 14,000 square feet of retail. How do we maximize that asset for the long term? We're doing that with Dream and Great Golf on the Keyside project on the waterfront of Toronto. Uh, we're working with Mattamy on, on a project in Mississauga, thinking about that. So we're really trying to think about how to maximize that asset to make it perform for the long term from an economic perspective, but also from an experience perspective that will help the community through its process of approvals and entitlements and ultimately develop. I'm not going to say on our podcast here that you're going to sell a condo for more money or rent an apartment for more money, but you certainly will have a better chance at selling that condo or renting that apartment if it's a better overall experience on the ground floor. 100%. And that's, you know, that is a proven uh, opinion, not just a statement. So interesting because uh, Corey and I, we live in the annex and we're right next to... Uh, the Honest Ed's Mervis Village uh, development where West Bank there is building, I think it's like eight or 900 uh, purpose-built rental units. And when that came out and I found out it was purpose-built, I was kind of like, ah, I don't know if this is a good thing or not. But what I've come to see and realize is, is that they have a vested interest because they're long-term landlords in the actual success of the community and the ground floor experience. And they're going to just amazing lengths and they're being very thoughtful with what they're doing far so much more than if it was a condo development and it was a get in, get out. And so when you see developers having a long-term interest in being landlords 
or long-term holders of specific parts of a project, they start to be more considerate of what is the end product that they're building and what you were talking about earlier, the end experience of the residents and the outlying neighborhood. And I think that is a big change that we're seeing in development that really has been missing maybe for the last, at least last 20 years in terms of what we've been seeing going up. Yeah, and it's interesting because the experience, and it's a good point, you know, a rental building, a multifamily building has that vested interest. What I'm finding, and I'll, I'll leave the client's name out of it, we're going through an exercise right now where in the pro forma, they've, they've sort of, they've projected a number to sell the space. And I'm making the argument that, yes, you can sell at that cap rate, that space. However, if we actually put a little bit of elbow grease into this, and we've spent the time programming it and figuring out the physical space and you go out and lease it. And then you have, even just at a short five-term, you know, a five-year term lease for retail, you take the median average of that rent and then cap that, you're going to make more money in that direction. You're also going to help with your approvals entitlements. You're also going to have a, a better lease up or sales of your condos because you have something to talk about. And, you know, the Canary District, which I know you guys are very familiar with and have been very active over the years, I was involved in my previous company and still have stayed involved with Dream and Kilmer. And the retail was at the front end, Not we had worked on the project, we had won the bid and started. But then once we were able to tell the story that Dark Horse Coffee Shop and Suko Thai and Tabuli Souk which is a concept that uh, the Tabuli Group put together all on their own. And even in the first five years, Gears Bike Shop has created. That was would allow the residential team to be able to say, this is more than just a vision. It's an actual community. And there are these businesses that are going to become part of your life. What's interesting is as you see this transition in development occurring, what will start to happen is a shift in consumers' expectations in terms of where they want to live. And I think over time, that will add to the saleability, to the potential appreciation and price and rents to these type of neighborhoods as people start to understand what's important to them and where they want to be and where they don't want to be. So I think it's setting an interesting precedent. And you see this now with some buildings in the city. I mean, the the real estate market could be up, it could be down, it could be way down. But certain buildings, you'll never see properties vacant for sale for very long, and they will always hold their value, and they will always sell very quickly. And I think what we'll see is in these type of projects and developments, we'll see that type of stability in terms of value to anyone who's looking to purchase a property because these are the places where people will want to live versus, you know, just as you said before, you know, uh, a condo above a Home Depot or something by the side of the highway. And so if you bring it back to the original idea and then, you know, there's so many things we can talk about. If you think about that, just because it's called Toronto or downtown Toronto, that doesn't mean it's for everyone. There are people who have grown up in Vaughan or in Richmond Hill or in Markham or in Brampton, and that is their home. That is their heart. Why shouldn't they have places too that they can come and convene in as opposed to having the old model? So I think that the opportunities are endless in the 905 in the greater Toronto Hamilton area for these moments because you know the costs are so... Uh, sensitive, the prices are sensitive, the costs are really explosive. 
you have to really think about what you're doing if you're going to develop something in downtown Toronto in today's marketplace. Not saying that things aren't expensive in, in the other municipalities, but there is just as much opportunity in those other areas as there is in downtown Toronto. So we know that traditional retail models are dying because of e-commerce, and they are. And so we're reinventing these spaces. And you used a term uh, to, to use these spaces for experiences versus to purchase something. Can you just elaborate on what the experiences and what your focus groups are looking for? Because I'm constantly saying as we drive around the city with all this empty retail on our streetscapes on the ground level that's been there for 50, 60, 100 years in some of these century buildings, what is going to fill that space? And what do your focus groups want from these communities in terms of that? Sure. And so it's interesting, right? Some of that retail should have never been built, period. So just because you want to fill it and you're a landlord and you have an asset and you have to deal with it, it's a challenge. If you think a little differently, maybe that wasn't supposed to be retail. It could be other types of active uses. And, and so just on the point of not every, there cannot be a there, there everywhere. No. It's really important because I, and I use this, this example often, if, you know, at, at least in our generation, maybe not Jessica's, mm-hmm. but the Flintstones used to be an amazing cartoon that I grew up watching. Yes. And if you really watched carefully when Barney and Fred would drive in their car, you would see dinosaur palm tree house dinosaur palm tree house. And when you really look carefully, it was the same three things, which is really interesting on how, how Hanna-Barbera would easily create cartoons in the old days. And you look at Young Street, which is one of the lo- longest streets, I think, in Canada. There's just too much of everything. Yes. So it's impossible for it all to be successful. It just doesn't work that way. You can see this in other major cities like Manhattan, Chicago, you can see it in Las Vegas, things that have failed. So it doesn't always going to work. But to your point about what are the things to do versus things to just buy, the consumptive aspects are all going online. I don't think retail is dead. I don't think bricks and mortar is dead. I think experience retail, the things that are going to draw you in. And I've got a great example for you are what people are looking for. So again, we're never going to get rid of the pharmacy or the grocery store because at midnight when your child is ill and you need that medicine, you got to go. You can't just do everything online. But at the same time, you can order your groceries online. You don't have to go. Um, And COVID taught us a lot about using online effectively. But there's a great concept that has opened up at Young and Eglinton called Stock TC, Mm -hmm. uh, a new restaurant and market experience just north on Young Street. And it was a collaboration between the owner of Taroni's and Cumbres, or Cumbres, whoever wants to pronounce it however they want. But it's a great concept, and I had the privilege of working on that project with Rockport Development Group, which they also were building an apartment building behind it. And that experience on the ground floor is an amazing market, a real commissary experience where you can do takeout food, home meal replacement, you can grab a coffee, you can grab frozen foods, fresh foods, uh, dry foods. Upstairs is the classic Taroni restaurant. And then the third floor has additional seating and a private room that you can rent out or the classic amazing outdoor patio terrace. They also have a terrace on the ground floor outside. That is an experience where every time I go there, even though I may be going for a meeting or a meal, I can't walk out of there without buying something. 
because it's amazing stuff in the shop. Also, how it's presented to you. Every time I walk into there, I feel like I'm on the set of a movie because of how immaculate everything is displayed. It's always well organized. It's always stocked. And you start to almost want to meander in throughout the aisles. Whereas I feel like most other grocery stores are almost overwhelmed by the chaos. And you just want to get in and get out as quick as possible. Whereas this experience actually wants you and commands you to stay and explore. And I think that that's so incredible. And I'm equally as impressed every time I go there. And I never turn down a visit. (laughs) So I had the privilege of being involved to help, you know, put that concept together. Uh, Did it rent the apartments faster? Maybe, maybe not. Did it rent it for more money? Maybe, maybe not. But being able to live at Young and Eglinton and having that on your ground floor is an amazing experience. Is that experience going to be gone in a day? No. It actually has created one of those entities and experiences that I believe that Toronto will be known for. Because Italy is an incredible experience in its own right, but it's a global chain. Mm -hmm. I think uh, I think Stock TC is a really interesting concept that has just emerged into our city that came from nowhere from two very very well respected and talented operators and it's it's creating something that's special. So you can find these places. Most of them aren't you know all from new, but you have to think about that balance of where can I go and create that. So what are people looking mm-hmm. for? Everyone's looking for something a little different. To your point, Corey, but. It's not just about fitting the square peg into the round hole. It's about understanding the demand. Stock TC, what is the population? What is the office population there? Early days when we were having the conversations, there was concern that it was too close to Young and Price. It's a completely different market. And there's such an opportunity from a neighborhood perspective. Both businesses, the Tyrone at Young and Price mm-hmm. and this one are doing exceptionally well. And neither is cannibalizing either, you know, one from the other. I love that so much. And I think that's so true because I think people do want, especially after what we've all been through globally with COVID and all of us being hibernated for two years and then took us another year to come out of that. It's like, what? how can you experience the city and enjoy it in a different way? I think people are looking for stimulation, education, a cultural experience, learning something new, being able to like hang out with people in a way that's going to allow them to expand or see the world differently. And there's just so many tools and all this new stuff coming at us that I think will influence all these spaces. And I'm so excited to see what that innovation is because I think it really is time for a resurgence from all that kind of old dead space that needs to be carved out and reinvented. So it is an exciting time for you to be in this world right now for sure. It's it's super fun. And again, there's always, you know, there's always another perspective, right? Well, it's too expensive, that stock, you see. No one's forcing you to go have a meal. Just go grab a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, they sell that. It's such an interesting thing, like a, a little known fact that most people wouldn't know, but I'll give you a little nugget. There are fresh fruits and vegetables at stock. Not a lot of them, but there's just enough if you want to get milk or, you know, a lemon. And what they do is the stuff and the fish, et cetera, that's not going to go, they move up to the restaurant so they can actually use it within their cooking before it goes bad. Whereas typically most grocery stores have to get rid of all of that food. And they're not trying to charge you an arm and a leg for those goods. They just want it to be a great experience for you 
that can complement it because maybe you forgot to get the quart of milk or maybe you forgot to grab a lemon on your way out. It's not about making a lot of money on a product. It's about making your life easier. And because they have a restaurant upstairs, they know that they can take those goods and use them within the upstairs to do their cooking, to create their recipes so that nothing is wasted. Rob, can you tell me about some projects maybe that you've seen around the world that you've drawn inspiration from, like something that you're just like, oh my God, this place just, this just blows my mind away. Or there are elements of things that you've seen that you would just love to bring to Toronto. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I get asked that question a lot. I think a lot of my passion, you know, and my instincts came from growing up in Montreal. A lot of things that you don't even realize um, because I had the privilege when I worked for IntroWest to travel around the world. And I lived in California, Colorado, Florida. I lived in the French Alps, building these destination resorts and, and, and places, you know, ski hills, beach uh, developments, et cetera, and a whole host. I don't think that there's any one place that I've ever seen that I'm like, we got to bring it here. But I think there are elements of every place that I think about. So you think about the public realm. Are there some amazing parks that I've seen in my travels? And for sure. Uh, are there restaurants that are institutions that have been around since the dawn of time in cities? Like, yes, those are amazing. And what I think about hotels, I love hotels. I always love, I love hotels. hotels. I think in another life, I'm going to come back and maybe in this life, get involved in the hotel space because I just think that they're so creative uh, and special and important to, to for people to you know disconnect or do some grid business travel. So there are things that I've seen in all of these places that have influenced my opinion. But what I you know like can I pinpoint one thing that I would love to bring? No, because I don't think that everything's transferable. But that feeling of place that I feel when I'm walking around the streets of, of Montreal, not old Montreal, I love it too, but like that great sense of environment in cities. I've worked in Tallahassee, Florida, with the Florida State University, which is a big college town uh, experience to help them create a college town. They didn't have that. They had a street called Tennessee Street, which had those typical bars and a big busy street. But then creating a small college town allowed the students to have an amazing game day experience Amazing, you know, because these these sporting events are massive. Sixty thousand people coming to watch a a football game, but also the other three hundred and fifty nine days of the year have a place to hang out because there's only like six football games that are played there. So it's really important to think about those experiences of of how and where. I can't think, Ralph, of like one thing that I would love to bring here. I think that neighborhoods Toronto does really well. I think retail, we can continue to do better on. And it doesn't mean that I don't think Yorkdale is amazing or there's some stuff on Bloor Street, but like I would love to feel like when I walk through the streets of Toronto in every neighborhood that it is such a great place that has been thoughtful, curated retail that is, you know, that is targeted for people who want to hang out. So if you want to go shopping in Toronto, as an example, at Young or Avenue in Davenport, there's some great flower shops that are all amassed on those. the south side of Davenport on the southwest mm-hmm. on Avenue Road. Rather. Yep. Can we think about curating retail and putting things together that are intelligent where people want to go so that you could actually have that type of experience more and more as opposed to you know, the, the classic national chains that just fill up the space? It's, it's easy to say and it's a lovely idea. 
But developers have costs. They have carrying costs. They've got to fill spaces. There's operating costs. So it's not always the case. But if I could start to get people to realize the economic outcome of actually choosing great users that will do more for your buildings than just slapping on the next tenant, I think that would be my big hope. I love that so much. My only pushback, and maybe I'm somehow becoming skeptical about people is just that the great retail experience or the great hotel experience or the great restaurant experience, the fundamental reason that it's magical are the people. The reason you have a great experience at a hotel is because it's personalized and somebody cares about their job. The reason that you have an amazing experience at a bar is because the bartender remembers when you were there six months ago, remembers what your cocktail is and remembers that you love the spaghetti and meatballs. And so my question is, yes, we can be so imaginative and inventive and creative, but how are you going to fill these spaces with motivated, interesting, dynamic people to ensure that the vision comes to life? Because without the people, I don't think you can have the spirit. And I think that's going to be really challenging as we move into the next decade of hiring people. And so think about two things. One, less is more. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be a lot to be great. It's not going to work everywhere. And then there are people who have done exceptionally well, have that culture. Like, I mean, uh, Isidore Sharp built a company from Toronto called The Four Seasons that is global. And so there are principles that he he put through to his entire staff that work. I'm not saying that retail is very tough because it's not at a quantum or at a scale that works like everything else where you can just drop it. That's why the nationals are easy to repeat and you know the power center is easy to repeat. But I do believe if you have a good project with a good with ambitious targets and the right amount of retail, you can actually go out there and find some of those operators. Like Dark Horse, Ed Linz, who's a friend and has been a friend for years and he's I think since exited the business, but I remember when he was opening his first location at Queen and Broadview, and it was an incredible experience. And, and he was brand new to the business, but people were seeking that out. There are people who are genuinely interested, who are wired to do mm-hmm. that, that want to do that. They just have to be given the canvas and the opportunity, as opposed to being said it's too expensive, you can't fit, you're not the right tenant for what we're looking for. I think part of the problem when it comes to your pushback and my pushback in return about mom and pop retail is when I think of retail, I'm not talking about restaurants or food services. Um, There's tons of examples in that field. Uh, I'm talking about retail where you go in and you buy a product. And, and, and and, And I think that is the real problem. Like There is no mom and pop retail at Yorkdale. And if there was, they would not be able to afford the rent. Yeah. And so and so that's where I think and that's where the, I think the real problem in cities are like if you if you look at uh the annex you know we don't need any more cannabis shops here. <laughs> uh, we we really don't. <laughs> and and so um those are the only ones that seemingly are competing are continually replicating themselves. Oh the, the vape uh, shops as well. We've got a couple yeah, extras. Yeah. I think vapes are making I know, a comeback. Like, why is there another vape shop now? <laughs> <laughs> no, they're, they're coming back. That's my theory. When I use the term retail, though, I, it's a catch-all for me because no one has put the right term to put restaurants, retail, services, civic, cultural, institutional, educational, yeah. entertainment. So it's hard. But I take your point that retail, pure bricks and mortar things to buy that are non-food based are, are challenging. There are, some, there are some categories out there that 
you know, you have a great operator in your neck of the woods who is uh, a great, um, they're an optometrist, but they're also a sunglasses store. Really cool. Monocle? Or yeah. Oh, we've Monocle, been there. Awesome. Yeah, we wrote them a review. Canard, who's they're a the great best. Artist. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they're great there. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't disagree that it's hard in scale to say, oh my God, we've got tons. We don't. And, but it's about finding and weeding those out. And some of the work that we do is going out and handpicking those operators to become part of these projects because we think it's that important. And, and I think when I, when I think about mom and pop struggling in retail, I think of everything other than, than restaurants because in restaurants, they are able to survive and, and, and actually flourish like Dark Horse as an example. But I can't yeah. think of too many retail or non-restaurant uh, businesses We've got three, four, five locations, and they're really, really thriving. Other than food services, and that's 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 where, and that's unfortunate, by the way. But I think that's part of where where the problem lies with a disconnect with neighborhoods and having a real experience with with with, with the commercial in their in right. their neighborhood. And again, in certain instances, I prefer. Uh, having the right operator in the right place at the right time for the right reason. Meaning the LCBO, for better or worse, thankfully our province handles like Quebec does the SAQ, they, they yeah. regulate alcohol. However, rules were changed that allowed for certain businesses to sell during COVID and it stayed along. So I can tell you that the Stock TC business is allowed to sell wine and they have amazing wine that you can't find at the LCBO, and they're not looking to gouge you either. It's great. It's a great product. So, mm -hmm. to your point, I think on, on the next podcast we're going to have to figure out what are the top non-restaurant retailers, and we've got to get some of them on here to talk about you know those struggles and yes. and how they do what they do and how what's missing. Like, where's the gap? I would love idea. to do that. It'd be so, so interesting. There's a couple on Ossington Avenue that are doing pretty well right now. Like one that comes to mind is Permission. What is that? Uh, it's a female athletic athleisure store. Okay. Uh, they did a really great job with just the fit out. Uh, they hired an architecture firm to do a really cool space. It's right at the corner of Ossington and let's say Argyle. Yeah, they've been there for a couple of years now and they just opened up a little nut bar inside of their retail space, which is doing really well and also I encouraging people bar. to uh, step into the shop. And then another new clothing store opened up called Grit and Grace that is also doing really well. Yeah, I mean, I think Ossington Avenue is a really great example of a revitalized street where creativity is encouraged and you see the changes with each new retail space opening up. And it's really amazing to see people taking it so seriously. And um, it all becomes this very curated selection of very unique, very cool uh, quality items. And that's why I love going there because you walk from Queen to Dundas and you have such a great uh, selection of experiences, bars, restaurants. It's not all the same thing being repeated over and over. And that's continuing to grow and evolve. And I can't wait to see what it looks like in another couple of years. Yeah, it's, it's, it was a, a beautiful mistake, yeah. uh, as, as Maroon 5 <laughs> might say. Uh, it was a policy. You like that one? I slide <laughs> that right in. Uh, it was the policy allowed for that type of use, whereas in a residential neighborhood, typically 
that would not be allowed. And it was, it was just an afterthought. And that's why all of these businesses were able to come in here. So it was a policy, so I'll call it a hiccup that allowed for that. And secondly, there's some great asset owners in that neighborhood. A friend, Jeff Hall from Hallmark, owns some of those buildings. And instead of just focusing on the rent, he's focusing on the experiences. And you know there are ways that you can generate successful lease terms with operators on the basis of not just the highest rent, but a, a competitive rent and perhaps a percentage of sales, which is very common. But actually attracting those, those individuals actually makes the neighborhood better. So you know, if you haven't been to Mandy's yes. Salads, oh, or yeah. if you have... I grew up with Mandy. I went to high school with oh, her. Oh, we have our cookbook right up here. <laughs> yeah. With 7,000 ingredients just to make the one dressing. I'm like, oh, forget uh, it. I'll just go buy it. <laughs> it's, it's the best. Well, now she sells it. But what's interesting is they started out the same way Nutbar did, right? In the back of a store. Yes, a I love the story. And, and so I think it's about the creativity. And I think Toronto needs to be bold yes, over the next please. decade. Try stuff, fail. It doesn't all have to be perfect. It needs to be a little bit messy. It needs to be a little bit interesting because that's Toronto is not the same Toronto as it was, you know. Uh, and I grew up in Montreal, but when you grew up in Toronto, it was different, and it's a different Toronto. We are a multicultural, multi-ethnic, incredibly diverse city. And welcoming that in has seen itself into the food scene. Maybe that's an opportunity on the retail scene too, uh, Ralph. Ralph and I talk about this often as well. The Toronto was like small enough that we didn't have that big commercial enterprise. So when you would go to international cities, like when we went to New York when we were in high school, it was a big deal. We're like, oh my God, there's a Bloomingdale. There's an Abercrombie. Oh my God, there's Victoria's Secret. Like it was like such a big deal. Oh my God, there's all these hotels. And it was just felt felt so incredibly commercially inspiring because we didn't have those things here. Then they came here and they had their moment when they all these big brands came and they had their moment. And now they're petering off and we're kind of just like left with this uninspired lack of innovation. And I do totally agree. Like it's time for Toronto to make it stamp on all this. You're here first. I hope that this becomes uh, you know, a statement that will come to life. I think Toronto's moment is now. I think that the to. independents are going to play. I think our multicultural community is going to inspire us in ways that we've never even realized, not just on the food side, but on all levels. And that's what's going to make us... Like, all eyes are on Toronto. It's one of the most important real estate uh, cities in the world. We've all heard that more cranes than any other place operating. Mm -hmm. But it really has to do with, if you want the city to be a legacy city, what kind of a place are we leaving and are we creating? Yes. I think it's critical. I think, but I think I totally think we're there right now where we have to make this choice because I think we're, we could steer down a different path as well. And I was sort of speaking to this earlier when I was talking about our traffic issues and our construction issues. I feel like there's a safety crime situation, a homeless situation. Like there's things that are bubbling up in our city that we've never experienced before. And I think there is this divergence and I think it is an opportunity for us to take the better path and the higher road. And I hope we do make that investment because part of me gets concerned we're going down a route that does not feel aligned with those expectations. Yeah. It's it's it also worries me on the the cost of living of of the city that we live in and, and everyone loves. 
how are my kids going to be able to afford to live here? And that's why I think it's such a critical conversation that's happening today. And these things aren't going to get resolved overnight. You know, we read the newspaper, we hear big statements, we hear issues that are going on. This is going to take time. And if you think about it, as I was talking about the trends of, of retail and reimagining them all, this conversation started 20 years ago, but it's now happening. So if we really want to solve some of these issues of affordability in the house, I'm all for it because in 20 years, if we haven't solved this problem, the, tr- the city might not be habitable for certain people. I think it's really interesting because finally, 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 the narrative is changing to people understanding that it's a fundamental supply issue that's really, really, really handcuffing Toronto. But what's interesting to me in terms of affordability, but what's interesting to me is you just hear the term supply. You don't really hear people talking about smart supply or innovative neighborhoods in terms of supply. It's all just supply now. And the problem that we'll face is if we just start trying to slap up as much as we can anywhere with not a lot of thought into it, a lot of the problems that Corey was describing will continue to exacerbate because what we need is smart supply. And so I think it's really interesting that we're having this conversation because the narrative has shifted, which is awesome, but it hasn't gone far enough to help stimulate the ability to create the city of Toronto that we all have in our minds that should be in the future. Well, and let me, let me bring it even further and play a little more chess here. There's not enough Fox Marins out there, even if all of the supply was there, if all the costs were in line, if all the construction workers were at the ready to build all this, there's just not enough of everything to do this to make it happen. I've seen some really interesting presentations and speakers talk about supply and then talk about the reality of delivery of said supply. We have some we have some sense. systemic issues. We have some serious issues that would even allow us to build the million homes. And if, it, I mean it's a challenge that we've got to figure out. It's actually 1.5 million <laughs> and we're not if we if we have that number over the next decade based on where we're at today, that would be amazing. And it starts as fundamentally as like, we need more drywallers. We need more people who can actually, actually build what we want to envision. And I think that's a good starting place. Uh, I certainly have a lot of opinions on other things that could be done. But I think going back to not just more Fox Marins, but I think more Spaniard groups who can help re-envision what this idea of supply is. Because I think that's the bigger problem. Because even if we were to hit those numbers, the real problem is, is that if it's not done intelligently, we're going to be creating more of the problematic issues with Toronto, with the, with the new supply, as opposed to solving them with smart, innovative development. Yeah. And so that's why I agreed to do this podcast. And I do speaking from time to time. Because my hope is that not people are going to listen and call me. They're going to learn something. They're going to try. They may fail, but they're going to try. I'm actually teaching a course uh, in Calgary with the Haskane School of Business, the University of Calgary, through a program called Ready Real Estate Development Institute. And I'm teaching a course on mixed-use development. It's an online course as well as a two-day intensive. Not I, I want people to take things away so they can go and do them. The world is, it's, it's, it's immense. Our problems are immense. We need more people to learn from them. So even podcasts like this, people should pick up things 
and learn from them and try them. Maybe they'll call, maybe they won't, but at least they'll have been given some, you know, you're giving back to the universe information and knowledge that hopefully will make this world a better place because there is no way that there will ever be enough Fox Marins or Spaniard groups or, or others. So like, let's try to get others to figure that out as well. I love that. Well, I'd be happy to be on your podcast one day with Corey. I think the course that I'm teaching, you yeah. guys be amazing to, to amazing. maybe zoom in and, and talk to our students next April about what we're doing. Because I've had, you know, the course is going to have someone from master planning and the course is going to have someone. Oh, we'd be happy to. That'd, that'd be, be fun. Super cool. Yeah. Awesome. It's a date. Definitely Love a it. date. Rob, like, are there any things that you want to talk about, like in conjunction to this conversation, just even thought provoking things that, you know, somebody watching or listening can sort of think about things or the development of the city in a way maybe that they haven't thought of before? I mean, listen, we are, we are living in a city and in a region that has some of the smartest people in our development industry. I truly believe that. I think there's so much to learn. I think that if, if, you know, our industry could focus more attention on that ground floor 50 feet up, take that time to think about it. They're so good at, do, at, at doing so many things. This is one of those areas that I say, I wish we could do better. And there's no reason why we shouldn't do better. And, and I, I made this statement, I think last week, sometimes it's better to slow down to speed up. If you just slow down a little bit and take a look at it, you can actually get it, be- you know, get the better outcome, and that doesn't mean yes, you should have the right resources, the right consultants, the right people on your development team. But at a minimum, stop and have that conversation internally about how is this going to work. Like a fire escape, you guys know this in these condo towers. Once you build that fire escape to come out to the at grade condition, you can never move that. It's never moving. No. If you carve up a retail space into two five hundred square foot spaces. Versus rotating it and turning it and having a thousand square foot space, it's like that forever. So thinking about these things that can dramatically change the outcome of your building, I'm not saying make it all magical and special and it's got to be the best, just make it functional Mm -hmm. and take the time to think about this because you, if you are in the game of development, if you're in the game of building condos, neighborhoods, cities, you have a huge responsibility. Because these buildings that we're all looking at and seeing some come down, it's been 100 years, as you said, Corey. These buildings are going to be here for a long time. So make sure you at least try your best to get it right. Thinking about this, it's interesting because when you look at any pre-construction development project that's going up, when you are a buyer or when you're talking to the developer, you're like, so what's going on the ground floor? And they're like, we don't know. We we're, we're we're talking to somebody, but we're not making any announcements. And we think so it's going to be a people, grocery store. So they always yeah yeah exactly <laughs> or an LCBO. Always. Yes, exactly. And and um, but it's interesting because I would think and hope with more projects like Lakeview or what's happening at Mervish Village as another example that that will shift and consumers will start to say, well. You know, I don't know if this is the right opportunity for me or it's worth paying a premium with options that are out there that have these amazing experiences on the ground floor. If that would be the best investment to buy or, or want to live in something like this, if I don't know what it's going to be, or you're not even showing 
that you're being thoughtful about curating what that experience is going to be like. And hopefully over time, that shift on the consumer level will happen, which will even further force the hands of developers to respond in kind. And the developers have a process of approvals that is complex in our region. So it, the question is now being asked by municipalities and authorities that have the, you know, the approval agencies of, well, what are you doing here? Can't just be like, we'll figure it out. They're actually thinking about it. And so while the argument may not stand that you're going to pay more for a condo per square foot because this retail is there or that, it certainly, from your buyers, there's many investors that are looking to place their capital in some of these units in various projects. It may be a safer investment long term if the, the actual environment, the accurate condition is more thought through than, say, buildings that I've seen in downtown Toronto that have been in the paper being worried about being very transient and, and, and not really thoughtful and, and a challenge. So I think it's important. Well, when any investor buys pre-construction, their best case scenario is when they sell it, resell three, five years, 10 years down the road, they're going to sell to an end user, not another investor, because the end user will in fact be paying a premium. And the end user will be looking for a good experience. And they'll have a lot of other options as examples out there. And I'm hoping that that will start to change the help change the conversation, not from, from the high level, not from the development community, but actually from the consumer community and what they want to buy or, or what they want to invest in. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And again, one thing I, I'd leave the, your audience with is there's not one size fits all. It doesn't all work like that. And you've seen developments in the retail space that have repeated concepts. And, and there are some uses out there that we all need. But when it comes to these projects, Mervish is different than Lakeview is different than Downsview is different than Eastside is different than Shoppers World is different than East Harbor. They're all different. All these projects are different and they're all large scale. What is that neighborhood? What is that community looking for? What is the opportunity to complement versus compete? What can you do to make these areas better? So to your point, Corey, yes, you're always going to have a meeting where sometimes you got to get ahead of, you know, get ahead of the clock because it may take an hour. But in other instances, maybe you just don't have to leave the area because you've got what you need in yeah, that area. Awesome. Right? This is such an interesting conversation. I feel like we could talk to you for another two hours. And I have so many other questions, but we'll save it for part two down down the road. It's always a pleasure hanging out with, with so both of you. And it's so nice to meet you, well. Jessica. This is the first I time. mean, I've been so, so involved many great in this conversation. I forgot the questions I had prepared. <laughs> <laughs> and that wraps up our deep dive into the world of mall cities today. A world where traditional shopping centers evolve into building communities, offering retail spaces, and residential community-focused areas. A special shout out goes to Rob Spanier Woo! for joining Woo! us and sharing with us his extensive experience and insights in mixed-use development and placemaking. Rob, where can people find you if they want to learn more about Spanier Group and what you're up to? SpanierGroup.com website. We're just an email or a phone call away. And um, we just opened up new offices in the St. Clair West neighborhood. Oh, great. So yes. come by and visit us. It's a super oh great little spot. Oh my God, when's spot. the party? Uh, it's it's going to be more like a stream of having all of our friends and, and, and close relationships come okay. by. And just hang okay, out. well, let us know. Amazing, amazing. We're in. Awesome. Thank you everyone for tuning in. And remember, your support is what fuels this platform. So don't forget to like, subscribe and comment below. We look forward to bringing you more engaging and insightful content next week. Until then, 
Take care and keep exploring. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Rob. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.